You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 110, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Nick Thompson. He's a direct primary care physician in Wichita, Kansas at Antioch Med, and we're going to discuss how to incorporate obstetrics into your direct primary care practice and how you do it. We'll also talk about the ways of getting other physicians involved in direct primary care, especially those who are coming out of school with just tons and tons of debt, and how you can make that work in a direct primary care practice, because right now you're facing large institutions and healthcare systems that can forgive debt in a way that a small business certainly can't. But first, a word from our sponsor. Physician Wealth Services, PWS, is a fee-only financial planning firm devoted to the financial well-being of physicians. Ryan Inman, founder of PWS and creator, host of the Financial Residency Podcast, developed a sense of responsibility to help physicians with their financial goals after witnessing how vulnerable his wife was to poor financial advice during residency. He was shocked at how many advisors tried to take advantage of her and her peers. Ryan started PWS as a fee-only practice so he could work exclusively with physicians who could truly benefit from unbiased, quality financial advice. Working with Ryan is simple and transparent. There are no assets under management fees, AUM, no products being sold or commissions being paid out. Everything is included for a flat monthly fee, the way it should be. To work with Ryan so you can feel more in control of your money, contact him and his team at drpodcastnetwork.com slash physicianwealth. As regular listeners may recall, this week marks the launch of the Doctor Podcast Network, a collection of podcasts produced for or by physicians. The goal is to provide high-quality content, and my sincere hope is that this will allow the paradox to reach an even larger audience and have an even bigger impact than it's had to this point. I want to continue to thank you all for either subscribing through Patreon at patreon.com slash theparadox, which provides the financial support necessary to help the production and promotion of the show, but perhaps most importantly, all of you who share the show with your friends and colleagues and listen week after week, and send me show ideas or questions through email. 
please continue to do those things. You can obviously always reach me at The Paradox Show at ProtonMail.com, or you can go to the website, theparadox.com slash 110 for today's show notes, which of course will have the links to Antioch Medicine and previous episodes that are related to today's topic. But without further ado, Dr. Nick Thompson on DPC and OB. Enjoy. Welcome here with my new friend, Dr. Nick Thompson, a physician who trained at the University of Iowa, go Hawks. And he is the one of the owners, the part owners of Antioch Medicine in Wichita, Kansas, which is a direct primary care facility. And we're going to talk about OB and just direct primary care. So, Dr. Thompson, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I was really excited. I've been looking sort of uh, for the unicorns in direct primary care, and those are the people who practice OB. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But I want to begin with uh, just your journey into direct primary care because it's still a new, relatively new way of practicing, we'll say primary care, which is direct primary sure. care. Why don't you explain how you eventually came to the decision to do direct primary care? Yeah, I think like so many, it's it's a long and convoluted road, but it ends up well, um, and it has has definitely for us. So my business partner and I, Dr. Brandon Allman, we started our practice about four and a half years ago, and we're located here in Wichita. I actually was planning on working for a federally qualified health center here in Wichita and was hoping to really serve an underserved population along with being able to continue to practice full spectrum family medicine. So including you know, procedures, office-based outpatient stuff, inpatient care, obstetrics, those types of things. And had a group of people that I was all from my same residency class that was, was planning on all working together at this federally qualified health center. And after kind of trying to create innovative ways to care for, especially an underserved population, I, I realized that the, the system in large part determines the outcome that you're going to get. And in the federally qualified system that they had and in the, the practice that was, that was present here in town, it was evident to me that I was not going to be able to practice the type of medicine and the quality of medicine and the spectrum of medicine. And I would be just be swimming upstream for all of my, all of my career. And with that, it just was an administrative, just major headache. And so in somebody who has kind of some administrative administrative gifts. I just knew that was going to end up being something that would be incredibly frustrating to me. So I decided not to do that. The remainder of my, the majority of my friends continued on with the, the FQHC. And to date, there's um, one of them that's left working halftime at that location <laughs> out of eight of us. So I instead got approached by Dr. Allman and he had said, Hey, what do you think about this direct primary care thing. And initially I took it as an insult because it was like, <laughs> how are you, how are you going to convince people, especially in an underserved area? And we're in kind of a medical desert here in, in which the South part of Wichita to pay for care. And then I started looking and actually realized, Hey, we can offer high quality care. That's full spectrum in nature to some of the most underserved in our population, but also offer it to everybody that does want it and don't have to exclude anybody based on, you know, especially an income income bracket, except for maybe the very most underserved. And we were able to, to go about doing that and have really a very wide population of patients that come and see us and continue to do kind of that full spectrum care all while really getting to know our patients well, having real relationships, not having it ruin kind of the ability to be present with our families and and still be you know part of our community here and um, allows us to still teach with some of the residents. And yeah, so it's, it's really turned out to be 
yeah, it's, it's been one of my best professional decisions in my mind. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and then when I talk to other direct primary care physicians, I think they all speak about the balance of, you know, I, uh, when you come to people who are millennials or Gen Xers, Mm -hmm. life, work, life balance is a question they, they find that's important to them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, not so much with the, uh, the the baby boom population is kind of fading away at this point, but I think yeah. definitely the younger physicians are they're more interested in making sure they have you know able to see mm-hmm. their family do those things. Uh, mm-hmm. I was a little quite interested when you were talking about the federally qualified. You're the second direct primary care doc I've I've talked to who mm-hmm. who started or was going to do federally qualified. She actually did it for a while and just was totally disillusioned by the by the mm-hmm. by the process. Can you explain? I guess. Uh, is it a is it actually like a federally run or is it just federally funded in some ways if, with through a intermediary mm-hmm. like a health system or something like that and do they just have lots of rules and restrictions that make it difficult to practice like do you have to practice a certain way you don't want to sure so the federally qualified health centers is a designation that is that has certain requirements to it that the government designates there's also FQHC lookalikes which which have fewer restrictions but get paid less and essentially the requirements are that you you have to accept medicare and medicaid however when you do so you get a higher reimbursement rate from the government for those services to that population than other fee for service offices so there's kind of an increased payment for those services Interestingly, and this is, I think, one of the big issues, you don't get paid based on complexity, you get paid on based on numbers of visits. And so if you see, <laughs> and this is, this is a big issue for me is they, they really wanted to establish a bunch of school-based clinics where they were doing lots of Medicaid well-child checks, which are a very necessary part of the health of a community, but it's not the only piece. Um, yeah. And you get paid the same amount for a well-child check that takes 10, 15 minutes as you do a diabetic hypertensive 72 year old with a 15 medicine list. Um, so that, that is paid the same. There's no level, you know, two, three, fours and all those types of things. The other things that, that they're required to have are a sliding scale fee based on income. In our area, the lowest that that sliding scale fee goes down to is about a hundred bucks to establish a chart and about 50 bucks a visit. If you make 101% of the poverty line in our area. So it's still quite expensive at the biggest FQHC that's in our area. And the, they still, you still have relatively expensive, they've got the 340B, I believe that's correct, medication list, but you still have imaging expenses and medication costs and still are getting seven minutes with a doctor. And so, you know, all of those things, along with the average FQHC has six or seven employees per physician. Um, and most of those, except for one or two are non-clinical trying to get, you know, grants and other things that are um, able to keep it running. It just is a huge, it's a huge organization for very little medical care. It's trying to get extra government dollars to be able to serve underserved population. So in those ways, I thought it could be done in a much more streamlined fashion. And I think we've shown that that that's possible. And I find other direct primary care physicians have the same approach in and I think the thing that su- strikes most people who have not are not familiar with DPC is that it really is very affordable, and and the mm-hmm. ability to take care of people who are of low means is actually mm-hmm. almost better uh, with the direct primary care because you have a much a much stronger relationship. Your your ability to provide that care is better, and mm-hmm. you're not breaking the bank for lots of these people. I mean, I, many of the ones I talk yeah. to, they they ta- they're basically treating people who don't have insurance, 
and mm-hmm. who have the ability to pay cash, you know, every month or with a mm-hmm. credit card or something. And, and they're, you know, fees that are reasonable. They're not, it's not concierge medicine in this, in the traditional sense that you're paying, you have insurance and you're paying a couple, you know, a thousand a month mm-hmm. or something like that. So it's, yeah. it, you can do what you can accomplish what you want to accomplish without having to go to a program. <laughs> Sure. And it's really interesting that, you know, this works very well for those that are, we, we don't have a ton of Medicaid patients. We do have a, a decent number of Medicaid uh, children that are, that have parents that are not on Medicaid because Kansas didn't expand Medicaid, but we've got a lot of patients that are just above being able to qualify for Medicaid. And we're by far and away the least expensive option, but then you get, we've got, uh, you know, a large chunk of professionals in our city that just love the quality of care and the accessibility. We've got about 38 different small businesses that contract with us for services. And then you've got all the folks that can't afford their, can't afford to use their high deductible. And so it, it really, it's a huge spectrum of where patients come from. And the awesome part is we don't have to necessarily differentiate between any of them or discriminate against any one group. So, right. I mean, you definitely talk to practices and they say, well, if I get above 6% Medicaid, I, my practice goes under, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so not worrying about that, you just you can just see whoever, well, walks mm-hmm. through the door, uh, which yep. is kind of nice egalitarian sort of, <laughs> yep. of practice. And we know everybody's name who walks in the door. So yeah. that's also a nice plus. <laughs> right, exactly. You mentioned the employers and that was an interesting aspect because I that's sort of like... Um, I don't say controversial, but it's definitely a question lots of direct primary care physicians ask the mm-hmm. question, like, do I go after employers and try and find uh-huh. find employers to pay for their health care for their employees? Or do I mm-hmm. do I not risk that? Because now I'm serving, say, I've got 50, 50 of my 300 mm-hmm. patients on my panel are from one business. Something happens to that business, or they change their mind, or they don't see the value of my practice. I suddenly lose mm-hmm. you know, a six my a income or something like that, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So yep. what has been your experience working with employers and uh I guess, you know, how do you make the pitch and, and how has it worked out for you? Yeah, thankfully we've had to do very little pitching. Um, and, <laughs> and I think that's, that, that would be my recommendation to, uh, especially practices that are starting out. So I think we had, you know, at least 300 patients in my, my panel. And I was the first one to start out seeing patients. And then after a year, Dr. Allman graduated residency and then um, began seeing patients in the practice after, after a year. And I was probably six months in and about 300 patients at that point in time before we ever really established any employer employer relationships. And I think that's good one. So you can work out the kinks and just make sure you're, you're especially from a business model, the employers are expecting something that's, that has continuity and is, um, is stable. And then the best employers to start out with are the people that are already your patients. So all of the, all of probably the first, you know, eight to 10 businesses that we had were the mom and pop, you know, cleaning companies, the mechanics, the, you know, mostly blue collar workers that they either couldn't afford to give usual benefits or they were giving benefits and their employees couldn't afford to use them. And so it was a a great way to offer services to people that already got the idea. And then in our area, we've been, it's been nice because DPC has had a little bit of a name, um, mostly because of the Atlas MD group that's been in town. And so there's kind of a, a little bit of an understanding of what DPC is in our community. With with that, there's you know just more businesses that are are interested in direct primary care. 
you know, the question about the the sticky nature of um, somebody else paying for someone's, you know, is is an employer a third party? It is in some ways, and it's a it's a concern and a risk. The way that we've mitigated that is mostly that we've we've not allowed any one population to be more than about more than about like one sixth of our patient population. So essentially a hundred people shouldn't be from any one place. And that could be, you know, one type of payer, one type of employer, those types of things. And I think that's, that's worked out well for us. And truthfully, most of our employers, our, our largest employer is about 130 or so people. And so we divide those among full physicians in our group. I think it's, it's, it definitely is, it's more work managing the employer than it is usually managing the individual patients. So thinking that this is going to be a way to, especially if you're charging the same amount, thinking that it's going to be a way to make more money, there's definitely more administrative burden to it than, than what you would have with just individual patients alone is our experience. Yeah, I mean, I imagine with individual patients, they have the ability to, they can see the value that they're receiving. They're the ones directly paying you. They're saying, oh, I'm getting $50 a month worth of value for this relationship. Whereas for an employer, <clears throat> they're shelling out $1,000 a month, let's say, and mm-hmm. they've got it. And so are they looking for metrics? Are they saying, hey, uh, you know, mm-hmm. prove to us that our patient, you know, our employees are actually going to see you, that they're, yeah. they're getting some value for that? I mean, it's, that's the, probably mm-hmm. the struggle with this, right? Yeah. And we've essentially, um, we've set a pretty low bar saying we're, <laughs> we're not going to give you anything. And the the best bar is do your employees like the benefit that they, that they receive? Are they, are they happy? Do they get the care that they need? I think that's the patient satisfaction, especially when it's something that you're paying for is probably a, a, a very good metric. The hard part with this that we tell employers is we could, we could try to give you all sorts of information. You're just going to have to pay for it and you're going to have to mine it and you're going to have to, you know, we would, we could couple with businesses, but at about 50 bucks a month, you're going to be paying twice or more than that to just get a metric. Yeah. Right. Probably the best metrics are some of the downstream insurance-based things that they can harvest out of their insurance-based data hospitalizations, deaths, that's a pretty good metric, um, especially in healthcare. Those types of, of major outcomes are a little bit more definable, probably a, a better indicator of, uh, of some of the health outcomes than how many times have you seen a patient. And that's really hard to define in DPC because the majority of the patients that I see, I see by a text message or a phone call or a video visit, or a, I walked over, you know, went outside and took a walk with them, or I saw them in our parking lot for a COVID test or, <laughs> you know, so th- those types of things are all difficult to define. What is a visit when it isn't associated with a 99214 CPT code? So. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, the, uh, the asymmetrical sort of visits and things like that are really, mm-hmm. um, they're important, and I think they're that's the tremendous value that you bring to the relationship. And that you don't have to worry about how you see someone, mm-hmm. right? Like in, in a typical office setting with insurance, you have to have spend a certain amount of time. You have to gather yeah. social social history, family history, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And now you just say, well, I don't need it. I mean, that doesn't really matter with what we're talking mm-hmm. about today. I just can yep. do whatever it is and just take care of it. And honestly, I'm sure the patient doesn't feel like they got better care, or worse care by filling out a survey of how much you know whether they're still wearing a seatbelt yeah. or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. 
And I think especially when they're, when patients are filling out a survey and then it's never read, I mean, that's a great way to have patient dissatisfaction. And, you know, we, we have a intake form that's relatively lengthy. I mean, it probably takes patients five to 10 minutes to fill out when they come here as a new patient. I can't tell you the number of times when patients tell me, wow, you actually read that thing when I'm summarizing their, their past medical history from memory. And it's like, well, we actually care about you. And we're not going to tell you that we're going to, we want you to fill out a form if we're not going to actually read it and use it. So, uh, you know, we get to, we get to create um, systems that help us to take care of patients well and in a timely manner and, and to be accessible and to be affordable. And, you know, that's what they're paying us to do. And so we're incentivized to do that very well. So how did you first hear about DPC that made you, or is it Brad or um, Brandon? So oh, Brandon, Dr. Sorry, Allman. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So he, I had, I mean, I'd heard about concierge medicine and I just thought that they were essentially the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I'd heard of Atlas, but didn't really know what they did here in Wichita, even while I was in residency. When Brandon approached me and said, Hey, I think this is, this is something that you should do after being incensed. I then went and he was like, you should just, you know, watch the, or listen to the Atlas podcasts is at that point in time, they were still in the process of putting out their, their, a lot of their podcasts that um, kind of went over kind of the basics of DPC and then started watching all the YouTube videos and found DPC Frontier and went and visited Atlas and went and, and visited um, New Care with Ryan Newhoffel up in Lawrence and started talking with setting up conference calls with folks like Jack Forbush. He was, he's one of the other DPC docs that does OB. And so we started setting those all up and creating a business plan. And that was kind of the start of it. So, and we really thought, you know, Hey, we're, um, we're little guys on the totem pole here. We're going to start this business, maybe grow, you know, 15, 20 patients a month was our business plan. And it kind of just blew up and yeah. So that we didn't do anything that was necessarily special that I see, you know, other DPC practices that are starting up here now doing a whole lot differently than what we did. So yeah. You have a lot, you had a lot of growth initially when you read other people who started the practices. I mean, they, they, it's some of them really struggle to get 10 patients yeah. or they have trouble unloading so many patients. Like, you know, if you say yes. <clears throat> we want growth, but <laughs> yes. heck, if you get 60 patients in a month that you can't really see 60 new patients. I mean, that's a, those are some long days, right? Yeah. Yeah. Both very true. So one, I can't tell you exactly why we grew quickly. I think it had a, it was probably a combination of things and I attribute it probably mostly to at that, at that time, and still probably now we're probably underpriced. Um, so our, you know, our, you can find our prices um, mm-hmm. online um, and we were um, less expensive than what we are now, are now when we first started. The second piece was, I think DPC is somewhat known in Wichita. And so there was, Atlas was kind of becoming full at that point in time. And so we kind of probably caught some of their uh, overflow. The third piece, I think we just gave really, really good care to people. And we got into some pockets of patients that were good sellers of what we did. They loved what we did and they sold it to all their friends and they had relatively big networks of people that were interested in the same type of care that we, um, we delivered that especially hit home with a lot of the faith community here in Wichita and has been a a group that I've loved being part of, but also taking care of, of folks from that, that group. So, so that I think helped us to grow initially when we started out, it was, so we, we didn't 
budget for any staff. My wife is a nurse and she worked essentially for free 15 to 20 hours a week. And when we opened, we had a two month old. So he was sitting in the bouncer <laughs> in the corner while we were seeing patients. And, you know, if we needed to draw somebody's blood, they got to hold our kid while we were drawing their blood. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was truly a family affair and you're absolutely right. It's six months. We had like 300 patients and we were just I, I, it was, it was like the drinking from the fire hose, yeah. trying to take care of that people in that, in that nature, that quality of care, that, that amount of time and kind of high touch medical care, it about put me under. <laughs> so thankfully we hired staff and, and got caught up, but that first year was really rough. And I was, you know, I, when people say, oh, you know, uh, that, that life balance, the life balance for me didn't really come until sometime into year two and some marital counseling. So um, <laughs> that was, it was a necessary piece. So, yeah. And I think some of that too was unique in my circumstance where I knew I had a, a partner that was coming on that was wanting to take essentially all of the new patients and was not wanting to limit growth for him. And at, you know, in most cases, if you have a small and single physician practice, you just, put folks on a wait list and then take them as you want. Right. I mean, I, my situation, it was take as many as you can get till you're close to full and then encourage growth with the business partner that you have. And so that worked well, but it was definitely a stress in my first year. Yeah. I suppose, and you know, like anything, there's your circumstances change. It just depends mm -hmm. on what works for you for that time. Yep. One of the big other barriers to people entering direct primary care is debt, student debt, right? So yep, most people absolutely. enter or <clears throat> enter life after residency with about a quarter million dollars of debt yep. from medical school and maybe even undergraduate. And the question is always like, should I work and work someplace and make some money mm -hmm. or get debt forgiven? Do I do work on an you know, Indian reservation? Whatever, you know, all mm -hmm. sorts of different uh, options for getting out of debt first. Or do I just plunge right in and go into further debt and buy getting office space and some equipment and stuff yeah. like that? What did you guys do and what do you, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's not one answer, but what, did you, what was your recommendation yeah, totally. when people asked you that question? Yeah. So I had about a year in between when I had decided not to do the FQHC and when our business opened. And I had at that point kind of like, I'd paid down some debt with moonlighting through my residency and fellowship and still had like 150, 160,000 in debt that was left after paying down debt. And that granted that's, you know, seven years ago now or whatever. So my answer to that and what I did was I moonlit pretty hard for about six months prior to opening our practice. And that included, I was part-time faculty for the residency here, the family medicine residency. So I essentially did inpatient care and OB just in the hospital and taught residents and ran those services for the residency. I was a chief medical officer for a small town that had lost their, their physician and helped to run their hospital and nursing home and ER and inpatient unit and oversaw their mid-levels. And then I worked at a bunch of different small town ERs and I paid off all of our debt on like the week before we started our practice. So that was my answer to how to do it. And when you can pay off 
you know, $150,000 in six months through something that doesn't require, you know, any long-term contracts and have lots of, of, you know, sticky details, or you have to give away this many years of your life that felt like a good, a good option to me. So that was how we, we went about doing it. You know, now that we're, I think that that answer looks different for everybody based on how burned out you are and how much debt you have and how quickly you think you're going to grow. And, you know, nowadays the, the model and the, the template for how to grow a DPC practice is much more well-known than it was four or five years ago. So you can be relatively reassured if you follow some pretty basic steps that you might not grow super fast, but you're eventually going to grow, especially if you're a decent practitioner and, and likable, you're probably going to grow. <laughs> the answer now that we're, so we're, we now have two employed physicians that work for us and have a third one that's starting in January. And we're trying to answer that question too, for folks that are are you know coming out of residency and have that have that question. So we with our fourth physicians who's working here, we're basically matching along with whatever he's generating in revenue from his uh, membership based practice. We're matching that to es- essentially approximate what his residency salary would have been until he's able to kind of generate that revenue on his own. So that way he can continue kind of with income based repayment for student loans, be able to continue to living at a same lifestyle that he. He lived in residency, which he was happy to do, and he gets to grow a practice and not worry a ton about having to moonlight a ton because that he's got a young family and that was important to him. So that's one of the answers that I think didn't exist, you know, five or six years ago when we started. There was not; it wasn't something that there were a whole lot of groups that were adding employed doctors and helping to kind of supplement income in in those ways. So yeah. I mean, just creative solutions, right? And yeah, whatever might you want to try out. So yep. let's talk about OB briefly. Um, sure. Uh, one of the one of the criticisms of direct primary care or primary care in general with the direct model is that mm-hmm. if you don't have a continuing care or you mm-hmm. episodic care, you can't have a membership based care because although you're pregnant for almost a year, it's not mm-hmm. that long, right? And so it's not like you're gonna have yep. an established ten year relationship. You obviously have some patients who are since your family practice have become pregnant while they're your patient and then go through the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you probably also, I'm guessing, at least looking at your website, you take people who are just going to go through pregnancy and want to have prenatal care and mm-hmm. uh, and perinatal care. So how do you do that? I mean, because it, it seems like it'd be very difficult to, to establish yourself and to actually make it work so that people find the value in doing that. And right. I mean, I, yep. I just, I guess go with, walk through how you, do, how you work it all out. Yeah. I would say probably 98% of, of the people who get pregnancy care through our office are established patients here or who establish with their pregnancy planning on staying established patients with us. We have very few people that come to us just for pregnancy care. Um, the, the way that I, and I didn't necessarily think about this the same way when we first started, but the way that I think about um, pregnancy care in um, DPC is that it probably isn't an area that you're going to make a whole lot less expensive, except for a very small subset of patients. Um, it's probably an area where you're going to give better service at a small amount of increased cost to patients that are desiring that that level of service or that amount of, of accessibility. And really, you know, when I think about it, we, we charge 
less than the average doula does in our area <laughs> to deliver all, um, all prenatal care, all the office visits, um, to deliver a baby in the hospital, to do the postpartum care, to take care of the newborn, to do a newborn circumcision if they want one and the postpartum follow-up. So our physician fee is less than most doulas in our area. So we're not, we're, we, this is not a, a major moneymaker for us. And it's something that's usually an, a little bit of an extra cost to people, especially if they're meeting their deductible, because most of these things people aren't being reimbursed for in large part. So it's an extra expense that we're charging on top of what they would do if they're meeting their deductible. But that being said, that charge seems very reasonable to people that want their own doctor delivering them, that want their own, the doctor that delivers them also caring for their child, that wants the doctor that they know being the one that's there for them when, when stuff does get hard or when, you know, there's, there's issues. So I really, I think it, it is best sold to the people that already are appreciating the care that you give. So that's the majority of the people that see us are, are pregnant. So we have a pregnancy charge that covers all of the physician's time related to pregnancy. And that's on top of our usual membership. Initially, when we started out, we actually had a, a package that included the physician's time in addition to all the routine prenatal care stuff. So labs, two ultrasounds, Rogam if you needed a pap smear, um, Tdap, a flu shot, a pap, um, all, all of the kind of routine OB care stuff. And what we found was that most people were going to, most of the, the patients ended up being insured or having Medicaid. And most of them wanted to use their insurance to pay for those things yeah. because they were either going to get it free through Medicaid or there, it was going to be applied to their deductible. And then they would have less out-of-pocket expense at the end of the year. We're exceptions to that. We still get um, some people that, you know, want to pay for their labs because they're going to be pregnant during two deductible cycles. So they pay for their labs, the, the first half, and then they, everything else goes onto the deductible the next, the subsequent year. But for, so the, the package didn't really work out because we were making people pay double when they could have just applied stuff to their deductible. With this pregnancy care, we, we deliver one or two babies a month on average per physician. We've got three of us that are doing OB right now. And our, the fourth physician that's joining us is planning on doing OB as well. So we don't do super high volumes. One of our female physicians, she delivers probably two to three babies a month. So she's a little bit more, uh, just has a few, few more deliveries. So we're not doing tons of them. Almost all of my patients that I deliver are people that have already been established with me. So then the natural question people ask you, well, how do you go on vacation? How do you, uh -huh. I mean, obviously you cover for each other at times, right? I mean, how yep. do you, in a, in a most, I don't know if that's even fair to say anymore. Most TPC practices are solo practitioners anymore. I, uh -huh. I guess it's probably a mix, but yeah, I'm, I think what, it, how do you guys I think work it's it out with the evolving, um, but I still think there's lots of independent practices. Yeah. You know, this, this was a, this is a hard, hard thing when I was here kind of, you know, the only, the only physician in a practice who's doing OB, you got to have some friends. So <laughs> um, thankfully I had lots of friends at the residency who were willing to cover me. If I, if I was gone, I took a week of vacation in my whole first year and then a few weekends. So it wasn't much leave. If you're going to do OB, you probably, it's probably best to do so in a 
partnership relationship in a DPC practice where you can share call. And, you know, we essentially take, uh, we've got about three weeks of vacation in a year and we just agree to cover each other's OBEs. And we tend to take our vacation around when we have people that aren't going to be, you know, immediately due. So we kind of work our schedules around it that way. The other nice plus for us is that we do have at our hospital that we deliver, we have a laborist system that is our friends of ours. They were actually the ones trained us to do OB. So they're OBs that function as laborists, but the only residents that are in the hospital and on the floor are family medicine doctors. Oh, wow. So they're used to kind of working with family family physicians and community family, family physicians. And so they've been very supportive of us and we're very thankful for that relationship. And so if, it, if there ever is a time when we're absolutely going to be gone, um, they're willing to see our patients for us. So yeah, the yeah. patients don't have trouble with, uh, do you have them meet the, your other, your other partners who they might end up have you called? Because yeah. I know lots of OB practices tend to do that. Like here, meet the five people because who knows yep. who's going to be on that day you deliver, right? Yeah. My, my partner is going to be gone for New Year's and he had me come and meet one of his OBs that's due here this next week yesterday. Thankfully, the the only baby that I've not delivered of the, yeah, I don't know how many I've, I've delivered through our practice, probably about 50. I've only not delivered one and that was because I had COVID. So... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a valid reason. Yeah, I so, think probably didn't want you anywhere near anyway. They didn't want me anywhere near. So, yeah. It, to uh, new docs right now, uh, what do you think the, the situation is since, well, I guess you're relatively new in coming out of residency. Mm-hmm. Are Do you think more physicians are looking at this uh, this model, direct primary care, or do you feel like, uh, like, do you feel like it's well known enough now with just on, on accident hearing about it versus maybe when you came out where you, someone had to like, pointed out to you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, well, and I, I was a good example. I, when I was a resident, I'd never, I, I didn't even really have an idea of what it actually was. Sure. When I go and talk to residents and explain this to them, there's always one or two or three that tell me, oh yeah, I've been, I've been researching this since I was, you know, a first year medical student or since wow. I, when I was in college and this is what I want to do. And that's like the example with our newest physician here. Like he's wanted to do this since he was a first year, you know, first year medical student. Really? Um, wow. And that just didn't, didn't exist before. There's always a couple when I'm, you know, talking to the new incoming residents that are like, yeah, this is what I'm planning on doing. Almost all of them could tell me a decent differentiation between what direct primary care and concierge medicine is. I feel like that's a good indicator that people have a, have a decent idea of what the differences are and enough knowledge about what DPC is, that if they really were interested in it, they could go after it. Where I think things look a little bit different now is especially as solo DPC practices have grown, there's now lots more opportunity for employed employed positions within DPC offices, and I think that's kind of the next next wave of DPC is how do we how do we go about figuring out how to employ people, and to fight against the you know big box hospital that can give you a big signing bonus and you know this this really nice looking guarantee from a financial perspective and a guaranteed burnout three years later, so. <laughs> You know, I think that's what that's what we're trying to figure out is how do we as, you know, small and still kind of growing practices figure out how to compensate 
um, physicians, how to you know help them to grow, how to help them deal with debt, um, how to mentor them, you know, into practice. Those are pieces that there are are a few people willing to take a jump, and that that number is getting higher and higher. And I think that jump is less scary than. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to open my own practice and take on debt to start a practice or have to build capital to start a practice. And what if it doesn't work? And then I go bankrupt, you know, that's a lot, a lot more risky than joining a practice that has already shown they've been able to grow and have um, knowledge about how to, you know, work those things and already has done a lot of the, the negotiating with relations to, you know, imaging contracting and lab work and, you know, all, a lot of those pieces that make DPC affordable, all of that negotiating has already been done in large part. So as an easier place to jump into. Yeah, sure. It's so funny. We have these conversations and I, so, I feel like it's almost like we're making it seem like it's revolutionary to start your own practice. I'm like, I'm sure people in the fifties were like, that's all you did, yeah. right? You just, you go and you buy, yes. a pan, maybe you buy someone's practice to their patients or you join the, uh-huh. it's, it's sort of like we're reinventing the wheel in many ways. Yeah, you uh, bought their three by five note card with their whole history on it. Right. I, <laughs> I, we're kind of, we're kind of making it seem like it's revolutionary to start your own practice. So that's kind of like what every, most physicians were back. Like go to yeah. small towns, you just would have your own practice. And, and, uh, but yep. it's because it's a totally different environment that we're entering into where one mm-hmm. dominated by healthcare systems and insurance payments and all kinds of mm-hmm. other things that are, and tremendous debt too. Right. So there's all these yep. barriers to entry. What do you what do you say to uh, a new physician who comes who's coming out and said, "Hey, do you think I should do this? Is, mm-hmm. Do you think it, they just have to have a passion for it and that they have to see real value in it professionally and personally or to really make it work?" Yeah, you know, I think you got to be pretty bought into this to to make it work. And I think part of that is that the the people who are successful at this one like really value, value the model because it allows you to give patient care. Right. And and patient care in the way that is important to you. If you, it's much harder to, from my perspective anyway, to just make this run as as a business to be a a large moneymaker. There are DPC practices that, that are very large moneymakers. It's, it has a different feel to it to me than what the majority of DPC practices are. And I think, you know, being willing to, I think, I think the, the risks of future burnout, the risks of like leaving your family behind, you know, by doing notes all night long and being, you know, on call, you know, in, in crazy ways and, and yeah, just being professionally burned out versus having a, a practice that is grown in, in the way that you like it, that yeah, serves patients in the way that you see valuable, that gives you time to put towards the stuff that you, you think is, is valuable, both personally and professionally. I think those things are worth something. And even if that means taking a lower salary or a lower salary for a period of time or no salary and moonlighting for a period of time, I think for those that, that find that worth it, DPC is, is absolutely the way to go because it gives you a great way to practice medical care that you're incentivized to give patients great care, that they're incentivized to trust you for the care that you give, creates great relationships, gives you a good work-life balance. And 
really right now I'm earning a fine salary that I am more than what our family needs. And so I'm thankful that it, it really meets all of those kind of personal and professional goals for me. And I think for folks that it kind of fits in that framework, it's a great, great fit. And really the best way to, to know is to go and spend a couple of days with a, a DPC doctor. If we can't convince you, um, there's probably not, uh, we tend to be a, a group that, that really likes to convince people that this is the way to do it. If you can't be convinced that this is the way to do it, you probably should do something else. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, it's funny too, because I, I don't feel like you go to most clinics and, uh, people try and convince you that that's the way to practice medicine. If anything, they're kind yes. of grumbling about it and, and just dissatisfied. And I will, and I've talked about this on the show many, many, many times. The number one satisfier for physicians is the relationship with the patient. And if the, mm-hmm. the, the stronger you can make that, uh, the more you're going to be happy in your job. And, and ultimately, because mm-hmm. that's where you spend a lot of time in life, right? I mean, I think yep. that's an important mm-hmm. thing. So where can people find more out about you and your practice and, mm-hmm. and uh, follow you at, are you on the are mm-hmm. you in the Twitter sphere, et cetera? We um, we are minimally on Twitter. We're um, moderately on Facebook at Antioch Med Clinic on Facebook, and you can find us on our website AntiochMed.com. A N T I O C H M E D. If you have questions or want to follow up with us, info I N F O at AntiochMed.com is a great way to catch. That goes directly to Dr. Allman and myself, and we're glad to respond to questions. And if folks have things they want to ask us, that's the best way to catch the two of us. Well, thanks again. Uh, Dr. Nick Thompson from Antioch Medicine in Wichita, Kansas. Thanks so much for being on The Paradox. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again, Dr. Thompson from Antioch Med in Wichita, Kansas. But before we end, don't forget to reach out to Ryan, Casey, and the team at Physician Wealth Services by going to drpodcastnetwork.com slash physicianwealth to help you with your finances in the same way you take care of your patient's health. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. <laughs>